question to begin with. That is, what do you smell of? What do you smell of? I remember at, uh, at university I played for a hockey team and uh, we, we were quite naughty. Our nutritionist, our, kind of our coach, wouldn't allow us to do anything naughty on the night before a game, so Tuesday nights. But it was someone's birthday, we went out for a curry. And uh, you can imagine what that was like. Uh, the following day we were playing a match and we huddled around at half time and we could actually smell what each of us had eaten the night before. We were sweating lambuna or chicken tikka masala. We could go around and we could each tell whatever. It, it was awful. Anyway, let's move on from that. <clears throat> the point is, smells linger, don't they? They hang around. Now, sometimes that can be unpleasant, given the previous story, yes. Uh, but sometimes that can be really lovely, can't it? For example, why are we uh, kind of encouraged, if we were to sell a house or something like that, to bake bread on the morning of selling a house or you know, to grind some coffee beans or something like that? We do it because it's, it's a lovely smell. It lingers. It hangs around. Now, we know that to be true literally, but what do you smell of? Metaphorically. That is, when you leave a group of friends, what is the lingering thought that they have of you? What stays with your friends when you are not around? Many of you know that uh, someone I admired hugely died recently. His name was Mike Ovey. He died very suddenly at age 57. He was the principal of the theological college that both Ash and I attended. He was my personal tutor. I've been listening to what are called his funeral appreciations, a number of little mini, kind of 10-minute talks, appreciations of Mike over the last week. Uh, I can only manage a couple of time, a couple of time, they're very moving, and I kind of come back to them the following day. Now, Mike was probably one of the greatest minds in the theological world uh, over this last kind of generation. And the fact that many, many eminent theologians that you will have read dropped everything and came to his funeral and spoke, uh, was, in a sense, speaks volumes of his contribution to theological thinking. You know, Don Carson, David Peterson, many that you will have heard of. But what did Mike smell of? It's interesting. Uh, literally, coffee. He drank the strongest coffee that you can ever imagine. Uh, but what lingered when Mike, was, when Mike has gone to be with his Lord? What, what has lingered, if you like, in that way? It was fascinating to hear these appreciations. You know, theologians, church ministers, his ex-students, friends, they all said the same thing. Of course we remember his teaching, but we all remember two things more than anything else. Firstly, that he, Mike Obey was incredibly kind. He went out of his way for you in his incredibly weird and quirky way. But he was very, very kind. The lingering smell of Mike Ovi was his kindness. One other thing, though. He absolutely stank of Jesus. He loved Jesus. And he taught us about Jesus in a deep and a passionate way. Mike's aroma, of course, will be around for quite a while. So his writing but also through his students because he loved and shared his love for the Lord Jesus all the time. We see that priority and that passion, that, of course, unsurprisingly, in Paul, 
in our, the beginning of our passage today. Cast your eyes down. Now have a look at verse 12 and 13. Uh, it should be there in front of you. You'll see that. Let me remind you of what it says there. Now I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and, and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. You'll see in your outlines there, that little kind of opening point, Paul's open door and daily concern. There's attention here. These, these opening verses, they give us a bit of context of what has happened before and what will happen in the future uh, in this letter. They help us understand, though, Paul's heart. His heart to proclaim Jesus, but also this tension in his heart and his love for the church in Corinth, that church that he's writing to here. Now, let, let me give you a bit of background. Paul has visited uh, Corinth for a second time after establishing a church. Now, that visit he cut short. There was all sorts of trouble in the church, and he retreated to Asia, we see, probably to Ephesus. Now, he did that because there was so much opposition to him. People were opposing him in the church. And therefore, once retreated, he wrote a letter to them. And you can see that. He mentions it in chapter 2, verse 4. It's sometimes called the severe letter or the letter of tears. And such was Paul's concern for the church. Uh, he lists his concern for the church in the pinnacle of all of his sufferings. Now, you've got to remember, Paul is the man who suffers more than anyone else. Flogged, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, and so on. And the pinnacle of his sufferings in chapter 11, verse 28, is his daily concern for the church. That's the pinnacle of all his suffering. His daily concern for the church in Corinth. So Paul has set, sent Titus to see how the church in Corinth had responded to that letter that he'd written, the severe letter. He was worried about them. He loved them. Titus and Paul have then agreed to meet in Troas, hence what we see in our verses here. He wanted to find out what was going on, but Titus wasn't in Troas, as we read in verse 13. Paul was therefore torn, really torn here. Should he stay in Troas? He desperately wanted to hear news back from Titus about how the church in Corinth was going, how they'd responded to his letter. Should he go elsewhere to hear that news and to try and find, track down Titus to get hold of that? But the problem was, things in Troas, he was torn because things in Troas were going so well. Look at verse 12, he says, uh, he, he regarded, um, it, we see what he uh, thought. He uses a word that he uses of his ministry in, in Ephesus, actually. He, look at it, he preached the gospel and found that the Lord had opened a door. He'd opened a door. That is, God had used Paul in Troas, and many, it seems, have responded positively to the gospel that he was proclaiming. Troas was hearing the eternal life-giving news of Jesus, that he'd uh, come and he lived and he died and he'd been resurrected. And if we would put our faith in him, if the people at Troas had put their faith in they too could be raised to be, spend the eternity with God. This is the gospel and people were responding so positively. There was an open door in Troas for Paul. And the gospel was bearing much fruit. What should Paul do? He's got this open door, everyone's responding positively in Troas, but he desperately wants to hear news of how the church in Corinth had responded to his letter. He wanted to track down Titus. What is he going to do? Read verse 13. I still had no peace of mind 
because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye. Said goodbye to that open door in Troas and went on to Macedonia. Paul, in his love, in his deep concern that he had for this church in Corinth, moves on from flourishing Troas and heads to Macedonia. But even actually, if you read it later on in chapter 7, verse 5, even when he gets to Macedonia, he's still troubled about the church in Corinth. This church that had caused him so much heartache. Well, that is what's going on, as Paul is writing here. And he, he uses now these difficult decisions in Troas to set up this extraordinary statement that we read of in verse 14. Now, many would argue that the image used here in verse 14, this triumphal procession, do you see that word there? The triumphal procession. Many would argue that that is very much the central theme of the whole of this letter. We're going to look at it. Uh, Why don't we look at it together? Verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, what we're going to do for a moment, we're going to have a think about that term, triumphal procession. It is utterly extraordinary uh, and, and quite spectacular. It's only used here and once, uh, in one other place in the whole of the New Testament, in Colossians, if you're interested. Now, let me just use your imaginations for a moment. You have to put, you know, get your imagination heads on. Uh, let me just describe to you what a triumphal procession was, a Roman triumphal procession. It is quite extraordinary. Now, these processions happened when a victorious general would return from war in the Roman army. He would process back into a city. There would be crowds there gathered and there'd be so much kind of hubbub going on. They're all celebrating, all celebrating the victory. The general uh, would be at the front of the train of, of, of chariots in the most ornate chariot. And he would be dressed in the most ornate purple uh, toga. And he would ride uh, right at the front, being pulled by the most you know, kind of ornate horses, or actually even elephants sometimes, which is utterly cool, isn't it? The general would be clothed, as I said. He would carry in his right hand this golden scepter with the Roman eagle on the top of that scepter. His face would often be painted red, as it's very similar to their, their Roman god of, of Jupiter, Roman god of war. Now, following the general, right at the front, all the following people would be, there would be carts of all the plunder that they'd taken, all the gold and the silver and the precious stuff that they'd taken from the conquered nation to show how victorious they had been. Following that would be the soldiers of the victorious soldiers in the army, all, pray, you know, all being praised by the crowds. Everyone was happy. They were the victors. And then right at the end, right at the end would be the soldiers of the conquered nation and they would be chained and they would be drawn in anyone who'd survived the war if you like would have been chained up any of the soldiers and brought in and eventually they would be killed and sacrificed to Jupiter the Roman god of war that's a Roman triumphal procession And Paul is using this picture here. Uh, But it's shocking, isn't it? Do you see see where he puts himself in the procession? Uh, As he relates it to his ministry? 
You know, you imagine, you know, you're Paul, he's an apostle. Wow, you think, great, where would you place him in that procession? Look where he sees himself. He's not the victorious general. Rather, we see him very shockingly uh, as one who is a conquered soldier. <coughs> you imagine, don't you, as he moves into Troas uh, and people respond to him, he, you picture him as the victorious one. The one who would be you know, taking all the praise, the one who would be right at the front of this triumphal profession. No, but as we see in verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives, captives in Christ's triumphal procession. You see what Paul is saying about himself and gospel ministry here? Paul is seeing himself as God's captive being led to death. But how does Paul get himself to this point? He understood that when he'd met the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, he understood that God had conquered him. What is Paul's favourite term for himself in all of his letters? He says, I'm a slave of Christ. And as a slave of Christ, being led by Christ, he says, I'm being led to a death in Christ. But critically, Paul understood that his life was a sequence of deaths, of trials, of afflictions, of sufferings. Because he understood that in those afflictions, those sufferings, those repeated deaths, as he would describe them, he would understand that God's power would be displayed in those weaknesses, in and through those trials. It's interesting, death is used synonymously with suffering. Throughout the whole of the 2 Corinthians, you could turn back to chapter 1 or chapter 4, verse 8 and, and following, or chapter 6, verse 9. Paul basically sees his life as a march of deaths leading to an ultimate death. Hence our first point. We are captives in Christ's triumphal procession. And Paul isn't alone here, you know. Don't think this is that kind of one morbid passage which you can kind of, oh, just tightly avoid that and no. No, it doesn't work like that. The Christian life should be viewed as a sequence of deaths that leads us to our ultimate death, our eternal life. All bringing glory to God as our weakness is exposed and his power is displayed. And I, I wonder whether you kind of sit there going, God, he's gone crazy today. Should we expect anything else? Well, I just want to ask you, have you ever looked at your saviour, Jesus? And uh, looked at his life? And look what he says in Mark 8, we're about to look at it in a couple of weeks. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life must lose it. Whoever wants to lose their life, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You see, suffering and death are the means God uses to make himself known. Jesus taught that. Jesus demonstrated that. Paul taught that. Paul demonstrated that. It's hardly what we would choose, is it? But it's effective. <coughs> Look at verse 14. Paul gives thanks to God that despite his suffering, God uses him to do what? To spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul smelt of death of suffering, of affliction. But he smelt also of God 
and his powerful grace that it worked in and through him, through Paul's weakness. Let me turn to another hockey story. I, I, I want to keep away from rugby, so I'm going to keep on hockey today, if that's all right. I remember when I was younger, I played for a, a men's hockey team in my kind of teenage years. We often travelled to away games, and I often travelled with a man, and he was an exceptional hockey player. He was an old England player, and, but in his, in his kind of 40s, and so he, he got a love for Cuban cigars. <clears throat> These were the days where he would drive to a hockey match smoking a Cuban cigar with two teenagers sat in the back. I know you wouldn't get away with that these days, would you? But there he was. Anyway, I'd be on the pitch later and the opposition players would often smell me and look rather puzzled. There I was, you know, a young 17, 18 year old, you know, running around looking quite fit and playing all right, stinking of cigars. And it just didn't kind of compute with them at at all. The point is that the smell lingered. And the smells are intrusive, aren't they? And the same is true when you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will begin to smell of death. Uh, not, not literally, of course, but as you kill off in your life things that you've clung to, self-satisfaction, in order to satisfy him, you'll smell of death. As you put to death your earthly nature and put on, to use that kind of Colossians 3 language, you put on Christ-likeness. Uh, as you make Christ known in a hostile culture, in a sense, it will be a death after death after death, a suffering after suffering after suffering, as you let go of things in order to serve Christ. Now, we may not view it in that way, but if you've ever tried to put off an ungodly habit, it's hard, isn't it? And even when you've let go of it, when you, when you feel that it's kind of gone, it feels so painful. You miss it. In some ways, it feels like a death in that way. As you share Christ with a hostile friend, wow, it can feel so hard, can't it? The pain that you feel and the the relationship being kind of jolted apart, that, that can feel like a death, a separation. We long for the Christian life to be something like, you know, we're at the front of the triumphal procession. We, we long for that, don't we? The victorious general with victory after victory. That would be lovely, wouldn't it? But you see, if that were the way that God had ordained the Christian life, we may be thrilled, but my point is this, would we be effective? Imagine. Imagine today if God would make all of us absolutely stinking rich. Imagine that suddenly, in just a blink of an eye, we'd all be the most gorgeous people as well. And imagine also that, you know, we were all incredibly healthy. There was never a problem with any of us whatsoever. So we're healthy, we're gorgeous, everything. You know, you can imagine the church would grow so quickly, wouldn't it? Because everyone would want to be with us. I mean, we'd have just queues outside to get into the third wave of the eighth congregation of the Sunday because he just wanted to be with Ali. I mean, not just Ali, but you know, and there we go. Our aroma of victory would be infectious to all. Crowds would flock to Christ Church also, but that isn't God's way, is it? Because his wisdom outstrips ours just a little bit. If that were the way, then we would forget God very quickly, wouldn't we? It would be our church, 
and all the glory would go to us. I wonder how you, how you view other churches, other ministries. Who do you watch, listen to, all that kind of stuff? Who do you follow? The personality, the minister with the largest following on social media with the whitened teeth and the picture-perfect family? Do you long for the church with all the kind of technology, not the kind of nearly falling over things and things that break? And, uh, you know, with all the courses, with all the perfect meetings that look like a TV show that's so well produced and so on, with the music leader. Music leaders always have those cool tattoos, don't they? Amazing. You know, they create the amazing vibe in the, in the church and so on. Now, I'm not saying all of those things aren't good things. Don't hear me wrong there. But what does gospel ministry really smell like? Take up your cross. It smells of death and affliction and suffering so that in our weakness, the glory might go to God. Like Paul, who, who thanks God that as his captive... He's led to death after death, suffering after suffering. But he is used. He's used in and through that weakness to do what? To spread the aroma of the knowledge of God everywhere. The gospel spreads from our weakness. As God uses it. I can stand here as one who can testify to that truth in my life. And I know many of us here can. So first point, we are captives in Christ's triumphal possession. Secondly, we are, a, uh, we are a pleasing aroma of Christ. Look at verse 15 with me, if you may. For we are uh, to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are being, uh, perishing. Now the word aroma, let's just think about that for a moment. It's a lovely little Greek word. It's, it's euodia, which is a, a, a girl's name. Uh, you think of Philippians 4, euodia and syntyche there. Better translated, it would be a sweet aroma, hence why we have the pleasing aroma here in our translations. And Paul speaks here of both the aroma vertically, but also horizontally. Did you see that? Vertically, the, the Christian is pleasing to God as our aroma arises to God. That is, as we share the knowledge of God revealed to us through his word, as we share the gospel with people around us, it pleases him. It is sweet to God. We smell good if we follow him obediently. It doesn't matter how people respond. What matters is that we are faithful, obedient to God's word, and our godliness rises to God in that way, our aroma. But the horizontal is also mentioned here, and then it's spelled out in verse 16. Christians are the aroma of Christ to the world horizontally both to Christians and those who are not going to be saved, as we see for heaven. That is, everyone else, non-Christians. The point here is that we ought to smell to others. We ought to smell of Christ. It ought to be clear to everyone who knows you that you love Jesus more than anything else. That you long to obey Jesus through his word. That you long to speak of Jesus to anyone, to everyone that you meet. And tell others the good news that they can also be saved by the Lord Jesus. And if we are that, then we will be a sweet aroma to God. But the reality is that we will get a mixed response to those, uh, from those around us. Look at verse 16. Because to one we are an aroma that brings death, and to another we are an aroma that brings life. Now Paul, what he's doing here is he's, he's bringing in that triumphal entry imagery again into this verse. It's brilliant. 
You see, in that procession, there'll be all this incense burnt as the kind of the general, victorious general will process through in his triumph. Incense would be burnt, and everyone, it lingered everywhere, everyone would have smelt it. The whole procession, the general right at the front, the animals who were pulling him and so on, the cheering crowd, the soldiers in the victorious army, but also the captured soldiers, they all smelt it. The point is, it's the same smell, different outcome, different response. Think of that triumphal procession. That incense that everyone could smell was a smell of victory to some, and it was the smell of death to others. Do you get the point? As we share the gospel with our friends, verse 16, to one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. See, if we dare, as Paul has dared, to share the gospel of Jesus, we will be an aroma to some of our friends who reject Jesus. We will be an aroma that brings death. But if we're an aroma that brings life, it will be those those who accept Jesus. We will be an aroma that brings life. And we've seen the same response as Jesus has proclaimed the good news throughout Mark's gospel in our small groups. We've seen that as the kingdom of God is proclaimed. What happens? You get a very divided group, don't you? Some accept, some reject. Some will know eternal life with God. Some will know eternal death and justice. I wonder, are you a pleasing aroma to God? Are you a pleasing aroma to God? That is, do you spread the knowledge of God through your life and through what you say? What do people think you smell of? What lingers when you leave a group of friends? What do they think you care about the most? Your career? Your family? Your relationships? Your travel? Plans? Your home? Now again, they're all good things. My question is, do you stink of Jesus? Is that what your friends think you care about the most? Remember, Paul has been defending the integrity of his ministry the whole way through this letter so far. And he asks the obvious question at the end of verse 16 as we close. Look at that. And who is equal to such a task, he says? And here he's saying, is any of us, are any of us sufficient in this? Can any of us do this? Is this too high a standard? Paul is clear, none of us are perfect before God. We all make mistakes and fail to speak about Jesus at times. But Paul defends himself. No, he's not perfect. But he's sacrificed so much. And once again, he just defends his integrity in his ministry. And as we close, we look at this verse, last verse, verse 17. Let it be a model for us. Let's look at verse 17 as we close. Paul's integrity in his ministry. Firstly, he turns to the negative. Look at it. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. He's saying there that, look, he's not swindled anyone in Corinth. He's not tried to sort of, you know, water it down or, uh, you know, kind of make the message of the gospel kind of more palatable. The, the, the peddling word there is a marketplace word for those who were kind of, you know, you buy a kilogram of rice and they give you 900 grams because they just kind of like do some dodgy weights on the scales. No, he's not peddling for profit or anything like that. 
the insinuation is there, there are some in Corinth who were doing that. Not Paul, though. Rather now, positively, Paul says of his own ministry, look at halfway through verse 17, On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Paul spells out in those, just that little verse there, a fourfold integrity. Let's look at it quickly. First, he says, he's in Christ. He is in Christ. That is, he is bound by faith to Christ and will one day be resurrected to be with Christ for eternity. He's a Christian. He's in Christ. Secondly, he speaks before God. Literally, as from God. That is, he takes the word of God and he doesn't embellish it. He doesn't sort of say, oh, I, don't, I think I'm going to be a bit uncomfortable if I say that in front of you. No, he says it all. Doesn't embellish it, doesn't take away at all. However difficult it is for the church to hear, he is going to say it. He speaks before God, literally as from God. Thirdly, he speaks with sincerity. It's a similar point that he made in the negative. That is, he speaks not for profit. Again, insinuating there probably were those in Corinth who were speaking for profit. And lastly, as those sent by God, he speaks as one uniquely authorised and empowered as an apostle of God. Let me finish with this. Paul's message, our message, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must not alter it. We must not embellish it. We must not water it down to make it more palatable for our friends to hear to make it less abrasive in a sceptical and sensitive culture. Oh, look, we must be wise in how we live and how we speak, knowing to some that we will be an aroma of death if they reject Jesus, but to some we will be an aroma of life if they accept Jesus. But we do all of this in the knowledge that we are Christ's, we are in Christ's triumphal procession, being led to death. Now, I want to close with this because this should not freak us out. These are not the words of a madman. Our struggles, our weaknesses, our sufferings will be opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for God to display his power in and through our weakness. We must not fight this. Rather, we must delight in it. This is not me being kind of masochistic or crazy. This is spirit-led Christian living in obedience to God's word that will bring him glory and it will be the means to others hearing the good news of Jesus that brings eternal life. I'm going to close there. I think it's... uh, We did this last week. I think it's appropriate this week because it's a difficult passage. I wonder whether we just turn to the people beside us uh, we do this, if you're new to us, fairly regularly. Um, just speak about anything in the passage you thought, oh, that, that interested me. Maybe you have a question. Uh, in about two minutes, I'll just say, has anyone got any questions? If anyone wants to ask a question or ask a point of clarification, then please do ask. Um, but why don't you just turn to the people beside you? If you've got nothing to say, just marvel at how great England are at rugby. No, I'm, I'm joking. Um, so... Just find out what encouraged you in that passage, what you found difficult perhaps to hear.
share those things and if there are any points of clarification we'll come back in just one, uh, two moments so just talk to the people beside you encourage one another uh, ask questions and then we'll come back uh, in a moment <laughs>